0: Hey folks, today we have a special bonus episode of Stay Tuned. In the crazy impeachment news cycle, many important national security stories seem to have gotten lost. So I asked two of my good friends, Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, who know more about this stuff than just about anyone, to get together, kind of like Ann and I do every week, and make sense of what's happening. Lisa and Ken are both longtime public servants, and interestingly, they've held the same set of hugely important jobs in law enforcement and national security. They were both federal prosecutors in D.C. Both served as Chief of Staff to FBI Director Bob Mueller. Both went on to lead the National Security Division at the Justice Department. In fact, Ken was the first person to have that job when it was created after 9-11. And then both served as Homeland and Counterterrorism Advisors to the President. Ken to President George W. Bush, and Lisa to President Barack Obama. During which time, one of her many responsibilities was to coordinate the response to the Ebola outbreak. Lisa, of course, has been a guest on Stay Tuned before, so I'm excited they've agreed to debrief us on several important issues making the headlines, including the coronavirus, encryption, and the controversy over the Carter Page FISA warrants. Members of Cafe Insider can hear Lisa and Ken's full conversation and access other exclusive content, including my weekly podcast with Ann Milgram, at cafe.com insider. That's cafe.com insider. I hope you enjoy this special edition of Stay Tuned, and be sure to catch this Thursday's regular episode with my guest, John Dickerson, who will help us break down the latest shade of crazy in the world of politics.
1: Good to be with you, Ken. Good to be here talking to you about something that is not impeachment-related.
2: Amen. I think I'm uh, up to the eyeballs in impeachment and ready to get back to national security.
1: Exactly right.
2: We do actually have the very similar backgrounds in that we spent a good bit of time in the Justice Department, yep. seeing the world from a law enforcement perspective largely. And then post 9-11 sort of moving more into the national security world as the you know priorities of the day dictated and the focus in the Justice Department moved over toward counterterrorism and the threats from nation states and the like. And so both of us sort of moved more into that area and then ended up in the White House dealing in the interagency process.
1: Not together though, because that office wouldn't have fit both of us probably. Yeah. yeah.
2: It was like a closet.
1: Yeah. You know, we're sitting here having been asked by Preet to um, get together and uh, spend a little time on issues that frankly, I think this, and I don't know what you think, Ken, but there's a bunch of issues I think aren't getting enough attention these days.
2: Absolutely. And it's too easy to get focused or remain focused all the time on the, the most politically controversial matters that are going on and playing out in the front pages and forget about some of the really important national security issues that are often lurking behind those headlines.
1: So as we sit here today, the uh, number of cases of the coronavirus are exploding exponentially, actually. We've got lots going on when it comes to the intelligence community and questions of whether or not they should be giving their annual worldwide threat assessment actually in public. There's some indications that some of the intelligence community leaders don't want to do that for fear potentially of angering the president. Uh, Lots of controversy around the FISA process and the encryption issue is back in the news. So lots of stuff to cover.
2: If I could start and actually first look to you on the coronavirus, Lisa, you handled Ebola when you were at the White House. So I think you got up close and personal with these issues involving outbreaks.
1: Luckily, not that personal with Ebola. Um, But uh, no, look, the news about the coronavirus, first, I guess we should talk a little bit about what is it and, you know, should people be worried about this? And, you know, one of the things that I think we we see, particularly now coming out on a lot of these stories about the coronavirus, and we saw happen in 2014 when the Ebola scare happened and the Ebola pandemic happened, is it's really hard to separate out facts from hysteria, quite frankly, and that was a big problem with Ebola. So, you know, the coronavirus, everyone now has has probably heard about this and seen a lot of um, news reports. It's a new strain of virus coming out of China, and it is basically a flu-like illness. It has spread really exponentially. It looks like it was started and came from from a bat actually, and then ultimately has now shown that it is spreading from human to human, which is what's really, really scary. And now the focus in the last couple of days has turned to what is the U.S. government doing about it? And I know from my experience that a lot of attention got paid at the beginning of the Ebola scare in 2014 with how's the government organized, right? Who's in charge? Right. I mean, you know, from your own experience, whenever there is a big security crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic event, the question very quickly turns to who's in charge. You were President Bush's Homeland Security Advisor. I think you all handled it in a similar way as President Obama did, which they said the Homeland Security Advisor, the job you had for President Bush and the job I had under President Obama, this issue fell squarely in my responsibilities.
2: Same with me and same with my predecessors in the Bush White House. And maybe just to step back for a second, the Homeland Security Advisor still exists. That position still exists. It's been reconfigured uh, under the Trump administration. But for both the Obama and Bush administrations, we had a portfolio that covered counterterrorism, general nature of the threat being any threat to the homeland, but that covered terrorism, pandemics, pandemic planning, continuity of government, continuity of operations in the event of a crisis, port security, and then, as you mentioned, dealing with natural disasters. So it was quite a range of of issues.
1: You know, people listening to this discussion might understand why President Obama had a nickname for me. Oh, what was that? He called me Dr. Doom. Hmm. Yeah. I know it's that, kind of that, surprising. It doesn't right?
2: doesn't make you feel welcome when you walk in the oval office and the president calls you Dr. No, Doom. <laughs> he he
1: he tended to say it with a smile, you know? But well, that uh, makes it okay. yeah, but the but it turns out, you know, uh every time I Talk to him every day, right? Every Mm -hmm. morning I would meet with him, as I know you met with President Bush every morning as part of the president's daily briefing, right? That morning meeting Mm -hmm. uh, where we would talk about the issues of the day, the biggest crises facing the country uh, from a national security and homeland security perspective. And unsurprisingly, I never had good news to tell him. Right.
2: Yeah, that's not our job.
1: No, it was never my job. So he he took to calling me Dr. Doom because I came in talking to him about Ebola or terrorist attacks or cybersecurity threats.
2: What was your nickname for President Obama? Uh, Come on, pray tell.
1: That's classified.
2: No. Come on. Leak. <laughs> we want to tribute to you, I promise.
1: Just between you and me. Yeah, just between right you here and me. Today? And a yeah. few
2: thousand podcast listeners. Yeah. You and I coming from a similar background as you know, a law enforcement person and a national security person, focusing mostly on on counterterrorism. I don't know about you, but it was it was a steep learning curve when I walked in the White House and suddenly had to learn about the statutes governing federal assistance to natural disasters, yep. or how to deal with the public health issues presented by uh, an outbreak.
1: And you got to be doing a bunch of things now to make sure that you do contain and minimize the impact here. So how prepared are we today? I guess I'd answer that in a few ways. Organizationally, at the federal government level, the Secretary of Health and Human Services oversees the public health service. Right now, that's Secretary Azar. That's a, you know, that's a big job for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So you would think, okay, that job falls to that person that cabinet department. But the reality is something like Ebola, something like this response, this needs to be government wide. It's not just a question of what are the medical facts. There's lots of questions about travel, right? How do you deal with screening Uh, Incoming passengers, a lot of people listening to this probably have seen the pictures on the news about incoming passengers, travelers from China or other places being checked, having their temperature taken as they get off the plane to see if they might have a fever and might show signs of infection. All of that has got to be coordinated with the Department of Homeland Security, with the folks who deal with customs, who deal with the border. They have to be coordinated with the local officials wherever that airport is. So it is a big, big undertaking and isn't confined to just one department or one agency. It really takes what we call a whole-of-government response, and that's why, in my experience during when Ebola was really escalating, there was a big controversy over whether or not the president should appoint a quote unquote czar. Seems like every problem at some point, whether it's people in Congress or on the news, start saying, well, who's the czar? Who's the person in charge? And you know, frankly, some of that I think is political posturing sometimes. But there's actually some a good bit of wisdom around the question, whatever you call it, whether you call it a a czar or not, at a certain point, the problem becomes so complex and so wide-ranging that you need one person who can focus his or her attention 24-7. Right. And that's what we decided in Ebola. And so President Obama appointed uh, Ron Klain, someone you and I both know, to be the Ebola response coordinator so that he could focus 100 percent of his time on coordinating from the White House across the interagency, across the different departments and agencies. Thus far, there has been no one who's been assigned to be a coronavirus 2019 czar. Uh, I think the latest news we've got coming out of the White House is that there has been a task force appointed led by Secretary Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, with a number of other cabinet secretaries who are on that task force. And that the National Security Council in the White House is coordinating uh, the work of this task force, but that's being done by the deputy national security Advisor.
2: The question of whether you rely on the NSC to do it or appoint a czar can have very real-life implications in terms of how well uh, crisis response is rolled out. So one one quick question. You hear about people being quarantined, which sounds to me like you're taking – oftentimes U.S. citizens or citizens of foreign lands who have rights, who presumably can be mobile and go wherever they want, and they're being told by force or threat of coercion that they have to stay in one place. Is there a legal construct in our laws, state and federal laws, for that action? And is that something that's happening here?
1: Yeah. So people would be surprised to learn that actually in a public health emergency, Local officials and federal public health officials have a, a significant amount of authority. So, uh, in fact, right now, in the last couple of days, people may have seen a story about there's over 100 people now who are being quarantined, for lack of a better word, in Riverside, California, right? Where uh, a number of people who've traveled back, who've, who've come out of China, where the, where the virus started... Uh, have returned to the United States, but there's concern among public health officials and local officials that they could still be within the incubation period. The period, it's about two to 14 days during um, with this virus, that they could still be contagious. So the local officials have the authority uh, to keep them in one place so it doesn't compound the spread of the disease.
2: That's sobering. And even more sobering if you sort of extrapolate that out and think about human-to-human contact here in the United States. I mean, this these are just the people who came in from China. Now what happens when people get exposed here and that population grows here? Could you see quarantines being done at a much more mass scale yeah. um, than 100 and whatever it is now? So sobering and uh, shows you the lengths that the government needs to go to try to protect the society from these kind of bugs.
1: Another issue, Ken, that I noticed uh, in the news of late is I guess you might say an oldie but a goodie or... Um, a not-so-goody and a not-so-oldy, but uh, is the issue of encryption. You and I both dealt with this in multiple incarnations. I think when we were chief of staff at the FBI, when we were in the Justice Department heading the National Security Division at different times, and then, of course, in the White House. And it's a perennial issue that only seems to be getting more complicated and a harder one to solve. And it just got into the news again in the last week or so with Attorney General Barr really staking out a pretty hardcore position.
3: We think our tech sector has the ingenuity to develop effective ways to provide secure encryption while also providing secure legal access. And it's well past time for some in the tech community to abandon the indefensible posture that a technical solution is not worth exploring and instead turn their considerable talent and ingenuity to developing products that will reconcile good cybersecurity to the imperative of public safety and national security.
2: This was in the aftermath of the shooting down in Pensacola that the FBI has determined was a terrorist attack. And the fact that uh, the government was not able to get into the phone or phones That were owned by the shooter to try to find out whom he was in touch with. He he was dead. He was killed on the scene. But, of course, you want to know who his Confederates were, who might have been providing him support, who might might have been casing the the location out. All the, the kind of questions you would have not only as an investigator, not only to prove up the crime, but also in this case to find out if there's anybody else out there who is looking to do further crimes or further terrorist attacks. But this issue, as you said, is a perennial issue. And it goes back in various forms, decades, but in sort of modern times, it's gotten the term the term for it has been coined as going dark. And the idea is that for one reason or another, and in this case, it's encryption, the government's ability to surveil, in other words, to intercept, overhear, wiretap communications by phone or by email or chat, electronic communications, their ability to do that gets narrowed for one reason or another, and some parts of the spectrum of communication becomes unavailable to the government. And our old friend Val Caproni, who was the general counsel of the FBI for many years— and Now
1: a judge now a in judge, Southern District of New York, your old office.
2: Mm-hmm, did tremendous God's work for many years with Bob Mueller in the aftermath of 9-11. She testified before Congress about this issue of going dark, and at that point, in the middle, mid-00s, as I remember, it was the concern that with the diffusion of different uh, telephone and email provider services around the world, and not just like one or two Bell and AT&T or whatever.
1: You're really dating yourself there. I know. Um, Ken, saying Bell.
2: <laughs> know. I'm looking for the telephone with the cord <laughs> attached to the wall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, back then, when there were just a few players It was easy for the government to feel confident that they could go to that phone company, back then phones, and those companies would have the ability, the technological ability and the willingness to cooperate and, you know, if they had a warrant for a wiretap, provide the wiretap to the government. But then with, you know, more and more providers coming on the scene around the world, a number of those providers weren't able to provide those services or were unwilling to provide the services. And as a result, a lot of communications, many of which might have been terrorists talking to each other, were unavailable to the government. And so that was the going dark problem back then. That problem became exponentially worse with the advent of end-to-end encryption and with the iPhones, end-to-end encryption that, you know, for perfectly valid reasons to protect people's communications, great for cybersecurity, great for prevention of crime, you know, malicious hacking and the like, but maybe not so great for the government's ability to get communications. And keep in mind, when you're investigating any kind of criminal activity that involves more than one person, you know, any kind of conspiracy, whether it's to rob a bank or to sell drugs or to commit a terrorist attack, the best evidence and the best way to find out what those people are doing and then hopefully head that off is by getting their communications. So it's really a vital piece a vital part of the government's arsenal, especially against terrorists. With this end-to-end encryption, that became more and more problematic, and then going dark became a bigger issue. And then that came to a head after the San Bernardino shootings.
1: In 2015. 2015? I remember that. Yeah, Yeah, quite vividly. Where you had the two terrorist actors, man and his wife, who basically— conducted a massacre at a workplace gathering in 2015. And it was about 14 people, I believe, were killed. And the shooters died in the aftermath of the attack. And the FBI couldn't get into the terrorist phone. And it became a big flashpoint between... The FBI, at the time Jim Comey was the director, and Apple, who obviously made the phone, and this question of should the company be compelled to cooperate with the FBI? I mean, we should step back here. You talked about end-to-end encryption. I mean, that is quite literally when only the sender of the message and the receiver of the message can read the communication between the two Individuals. That's it. Nobody else can get in to that communication. And that's the challenge posed by the proliferation of encryption. But as you say, it also provides tremendous benefits when it comes to securing things like financial information or health information, as well as private communications between people, all of which we now carry around in huge amounts on these little devices that we carry around in our pockets. So,
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating study of a clash of values. Every time you consider a national security authority a tool, an investigative tool, and whether you, Congress is considering adopting one in the first place or expanding or strengthening one, you're always balancing the incursion into privacy against the national security need for that tool and for that investigative power here it's a little bit different calculation because here the presumption is that the government is going to have the full authority whether it's a search warrant you know whatever process from a judge that they need so there's no fourth amendment issue here about whether they're authorized to get that access it's as you said whether they're able to physically able to and then it shifts in terms of the clash of values to a clash between that national security or law enforcement need to get that information as balanced against the cybersecurity need for that encryption, the amount of protection that that encryption provides for you and me and everybody else who has basically all of our lives on our cell phones. And so that's a really difficult balance to strike.
1: In other words, this debate has been, there can't just be an ability for law enforcement to access that information without weakening the entire system such that it is more susceptible to the bad guys being able to access.
2: Which seems like a very real concern. And actually, I think the reason that that debate never came to closure, that it never got resolved after 2015 and was still unresolved when the Pensacola shootings happened was because Both sides took a sort of more absolutist view of things.
1: Yeah, I think there's signs that there is now going to be some more movement on this issue. I don't know, quite frankly, where that's going to go, but the Justice Department seems to be staking out a position. You know, I think Barr recently said or sent a letter saying, you know, you've only got so much time, tech companies, to deal with this. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, we're racing against the clock. I'm paraphrasing here. And I think uh, Lindsey Graham who's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which would have jurisdiction over any legislation that might deal with this issue, has come out and said similar things, saying... And I'm not about to create a safe haven for criminals where they can plan their misdeeds and have information stored in a fashion that law enforcement can never be allowed to access it. How we do this, I don't know. I hope the tech community working with law enforcement can find a way to do it. If y'all don't, we will. So there's some sign that there's some movement. What do you what do you make of that? What do you do you think there's actually going to be I I realize that progress, congress and legislation are three words that should never probably be said in the same sentence, but
2: I can tell you, you know, I can go back to whatever it was 2015, 2016, I actually testified once or twice on this issue up on Capitol Hill, and I heard some of the same statements made then, that we need to resolve this, we need to resolve this fast, and people shouldn't drag their feet. In fact, I remember one time testifying with uh, Cy Vance from New York. He spoke uh, what, The about, district attorney in you know, the district attorney, and you, you mentioned earlier, the state and local folks are really suffering here because they've got a lot of cell phones from rape cases, murder cases, whatever they can't get into. Um, Anyway, he spoke to that issue. I spoke to the um, national security perspective. As my colleagues have made clear, we're in the midst of a national debate over the implications of default encryption. And this is a debate which has been going on for the better part of two years, and we now find ourselves at really what is a complete impasse. And it's time, I urge, for Congress to step in and break through that impasse. And I remember John McCain and others saying similar things back then, but everything kind of died out.
1: And then you have the whole economic and trade dimension, right? So there are a lot of voices in these debates that say, hey, if we try and pass legislation to mandate that companies have to build their products in a certain way, that's really going to stifle innovation." on American companies. It's going to put them at a disadvantage in world markets. And we really need to think twice before we do that. And frankly, given the global nature of commerce and the flow of data that is so important across borders, you know, do we really want to be imposing restrictions or from a legislative perspective on companies such that they'll just decide to take their business elsewhere? I mean, that's where the debate has been. So it is really, really complicated.
2: I mean, just as you mentioned the international dimension, well, you know, we might be able to legislate as it relates to American companies and the products here in the United States, but that doesn't necessarily bind companies overseas. And the industry, the tech industry has made that point, made it very effectively because it's a legitimate point. Could that just move terrorist communications and criminal communications off of the systems and devices from American companies into sort of far-flung companies overseas, which would mean they'd be dark to the right. federal government anyway, and it would have the economic impact on American companies no longer having that business. So it's a, it's a tough issue all the way around. And I, in terms of you know prospects for resolution, all those complexities are still there.
1: We didn't discuss one of the other objections and concerns with building in a capability for law enforcement to have access in the hands of an authoritarian government. What does that mean for the security of communications amongst dissidents or human rights activists in a country that doesn't honor those rights? We have to think about this problem in a really multidimensional way. The other thing I've been surprised about recently, Ken, is how much attention something that used to just be the province of an incredibly nerdy set of people, how much attention something called FISA has been getting.
2: And those nerdy people would include us, of course.
1: Well, they certainly include you.
2: (laughs) No doubt about it. Guilty as charged.
1: So what is with all this focus on FISA, right? FISA, of course, stands for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act.
2: And this relates to what we talked about in the encryption, in regard to the encryption issue, which is the government's ability to intercept, surveil, wiretap communications. And just to give a little history, human communications have always been a critical part of any criminal investigation. And back in the old days, the government would intercept letters or get eyewitnesses to, or ear witnesses to testify about communications between bad guys. And then with the advent of the telephone, of course, a lot of those communications started being carried over telephone lines, and the government had within its sole discretion to wiretap the phones, and they had an internal executive branch of the process for getting authority to do that. Courts weren't involved at all in that process up until the late 60s, and then there's a Supreme Court decision that said that people have reasonable expectation of privacy in the content of their communications over telephone calls. And so, therefore, the government under the Fourth Amendment had to go to the judge and have a judge find that there was probable cause to believe that there was a crime taking place or would take place and that the communications that the government wished to intercept related to that criminal activity.
1: But everything you're talking about there, that applies to drug deals, the mafia, Right. Murder schemes, all your criminal conduct. Right.
2: Right. And the majority of this, of, of wiretapping, as I just described, is done in the United States in regard to criminal investigations. In the late 60s, the Supreme Court rendered that decision and then Congress passed the law in 1968 that laid out a process by which the government had to go to a federal judge, the government being the Justice Department, would have to Mm -hmm. go to a federal judge and get authorization before wiretapping somebody in a criminal investigation. But both the Supreme Court and the federal legislation from 1968 left open the question of what the executive branch needed to do in order to wiretap somebody for national security purposes.
1: So if you're a spy, even everything you're talking about, if you were a spy coming here, you know, from a foreign government, coming here to collect secrets, conduct espionage. It was basically wide open field for the FBI to surveil you. They didn't have to go to a court up until 1978,
2: right? Exactly. And the idea was the president has primary authority to protect against threats from outside the United States. So this is a spy from, you know, a foreign government or a spy from a foreign terrorist organization yeah, it's, the, it's within the, gov- the president's prerogative to wiretap and investigate that person, and he or she didn't need to get approval from any judge.
1: Well, let's be honest, it was he.
2: It was he, and <laughs> it's, it's always been he so far. So— but
1: that
2: changed in 1978. That changed. Why? In, you know, it changed for a number of reasons, but primarily because in the early 70s, back well before you were born even, <laughs> um, and I was, you know, in my 40s. Not quite. But. And uh, in the early 1970s, there were a couple, there's the Church Committee and the Pike Committee, which were these sets of hearings that disclosed a number of abuses that had been committed by the intelligence community, the FBI and the CIA and others, intercepting telegrams and wiretapping Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, this kind of thing. And um, anyway, as a result, there were a number of reforms put in place to prevent those kind of abuses. And one of the main ones was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was passed in 1978, passed by Congress, agreed to by the administration. The president obviously signed it, but also the administration didn't object to it as a matter of separation of powers. They agreed to it. And it's set up what's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is a court here in DC of federal judges. And those judges will review, like a federal judge looking at an application for a wiretap in a criminal investigation, they'll review applications from the federal government to do foreign intelligence wiretaps of telephones or emails or texts or any other electronic communication. And the government's obligation under the statute is to demonstrate probable cause, not that a crime has been committed or is being committed, but rather that the person they want to surveil or intercept is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. In other words, a representative of a foreign government, you know, an agent of that government, you know, it could be a US person who's working on behalf of the federal government or on behalf of a foreign terrorist organization. And if the government is able to establish probable cause that the person they want to surveil is an agent of foreign power, then the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court gives an order to the government that authorizes them to then go to the phone company or the the provider and get that interception put in place. And it's all done in secret because these are the most sensitive national security investigations that we have. That's the process that got stood up in 1978, and it's still in place now.
1: And it's gotten very, very controversial just in the last few weeks, really. And this all flows from the fallout, really, from the FBI's investigation into the 2016 election and allegations of Russian influence into the Trump campaign. And there was a recent report by the Justice Department's Inspector General, so basically the internal watchdog for the Justice Department, who said, you know what, there's a lot of controversy swirling about this. We're going to take a look at just what the FBI did in starting this investigation into potential Russian influence into the 2016 presidential campaign, where the FBI used exactly some of these tools that you just were describing, including on a U.S. citizen.
2: The Inspector General would he went back and looked at a number of aspects uh, of this investigation, this counterintelligence investigation that was kicked off in the summer of 2016 into the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. The two main ones that I think would be worth addressing here are the use of FISA in that investigation and also, frankly, just the decision to start that investigation in the first place. In terms of FISA, they looked at the process that the FBI and the Justice Department followed in determining whether there's sufficient predication to get a FISA against Carter Page, who had been with the Trump campaign. And they had evidence or they had intelligence that suggested that he might be operating on behalf of the Russians during the campaign. And they were able to establish, to the satisfaction of the FISA court, probable cause that he was, and thereby got a FISA order and was able to surveil him. It had to be renewed on a regular basis, I think every 90 days, I believe. And it was renewed three times. The inspector general went back and did a very in-depth study of the process that led up to the issuance of each of those orders and found real problems, yeah. problems with accuracy of the information that was put in the affidavit that was given to the FISA court to demonstrate probable cause that Carter Page was an agent of foreign power. In one case, what seems to have been an intentional effort by an FBI attorney to provide false information. And it was a pretty damning report, not on the question of whether this was or wasn't a witch hunt, but as to whether the FBI process was being handled the right way or if things were sloppier than they should have been.
1: I don't know if you had the same reaction I did. I suspect you did, which was real disappointment in seeing the omissions, the significant omissions and inaccuracies. That's how the inspector general characterized it, significant omissions and inaccuracies in what had to be amongst the most important and most scrutinized FISA application uh, going on at the time, right? One that bears on an investigation into a presidential campaign. So you had the same job that I did, which was to sign off on a lot of these FISAs over the years. The process is not a slapdash one.
2: And to your point, there's a lot of room for miscommunication and mistake in the FISA process. By contrast, if you're getting a wiretap warrant in a criminal investigation, it's pretty straightforward. It's usually you're an FBI agent. I'm a federal prosecutor. You come in and say, here's the evidence I've got. I say, "It sounds like that's enough to get a warrant. Sounds like it would help our investigation get a warrant. Let's put the package together and take it to the federal judge. The two of us march down to the federal judge and sit down and show it to him or her and then hopefully get the order. That's pretty straightforward. All happens within the confines of the city that we're operating in.
1: And ultimately, though importantly, eventually, that wiretap application, the evidence from it, ends up where?
2: Oh, if the case ends up in charges, then it ends up in court, and it ends up in the hands of the defendant, the person that gets charged. And then it's all litigated and played out publicly before the the judge for the judge to assess whether everything was done right and that uh, whether there really was probable cause for that wiretap order. In this situation, to your point, in the FISA situation, it's all done in secret. And it's not going to end up in charges typically. It ends up typically in just a counterintelligence investigation. So it doesn't see the light of day like a criminal wiretap order. And I think
1: that's an important point to underscore, right? You said a counterintelligence investigation, which is really what this was. This was a counterintelligence investigation into uh, potential Russian influence into the Trump campaign. And included in that investigation was this FISA on Carter Page as a suspected agent of a foreign power. This was a counterintelligence investigation. Very different in purpose and scope and, you know, standards than a criminal investigation. The point of a counterintelligence investigation is to determine, do we have an agent of a foreign power who's trying to collect secrets from us and influence us and our government? And if so, let's gather information about it so we can learn how to protect ourselves better. The goal isn't necessarily to put handcuffs on and bring people into court, like in a mafia prosecution. So you've got different purposes, and then different standards attached.
2: Right. There are a number of different ways of dealing with a situation like that. Take this out of the Carter Page situation. Just think of any other spy on behalf of a a foreign government. You wiretap the, the guy, determine that he's a spy working against you. One of the things that we might do is flip him Back against his old government. So there's no charge against him. Rather, we go to him and say, we got the goods on you, and here's one of your choices. You can become a double agent. So, you know, that wiretap has been incredibly valuable for purposes of us— Getting intelligence by making him into a double agent is not a matter of creating evidence that's going to be used in court to try and
1: ultimately to... tested in court. Yeah, exactly. And so then you have this problem, right? You need to have a secret process so that you can conduct the surveillance of this suspected spy and maybe flip him back against his own government. And you're not going to have ultimately it all get aired in a court and tested in a court. So you gotta you gotta make sure you put in enough checks at the front end so you're not Surveilling somebody for whom there isn't probable cause to believe, and and that was the sobering thing, right? That just last week, the Justice Department became it got revealed. I mean, this happened back in December, but it only just became public in the last week that the Justice Department told the federal judge the the head of the FISA court that, in fact, with respect to two of the renewals of this FISA, there was, in fact, insufficient evidence to support probable cause. So that was the Justice Department themselves making that admission to the court. That was sobering to me to read that. On the one hand, as you and I both know, the coin of the realm for prosecutors and lawyers in front of the FISA court is ultimate and complete candor. You have to basically show your case warts and all. So I wasn't surprised that when they made this conclusion that there was insufficient evidence that they told the court. But to see that there ultimately was that insufficiency in such an important FISA, that was sobering.
2: And it's prompted response from the FISA court. They have uh, demanded reforms and reports of reforms from the FBI. And they've appointed one of our old friends, David Chris. To monitor that process, and look, there might be other shoes to drop here. You know, there's some talk out there that that maybe FISA needs to be reined in. Um, yeah. I know President Trump tweeted about uh, maybe FISA going too far in the aftermath of this disclosure.
1: And now there's a number of reforms that have been put on the table. The current FBI director, Chris Wray, has proposed a number of reforms. As you said, David Chris, who was our former colleague, he was the head of the National Security Division, our old job, he has told the FISA court thus far that the FBI reforms are necessary that have been laid out but not sufficient. I think the FBI reforms right now have been focusing on increasing the training and providing better guidance. David Chris went further, and it was pretty interesting to me to read what he has laid out there thus far, which is, he said, you know, we may be looking at a need for a cultural change, and have we gotten too comfortable with this process? As detailed and as cumbersome at, at times as, as you rightly point out it is, maybe it's gotten too ingrained. So we've seen the slippage that has been identified in the IG report. And I think the open question is, are there other shoes to drop, as you said, right? Does this reveal that there might be more systemic concerns? Because at the end of the day, the biggest issue here, as identified by the IG report, was the failure of information that would have tended to undermine a finding that Carter Page was an agent of Russia, the failure of that information to get to the attorneys at the National Security Division and ultimately to get to the court. So the other big thing to come out of this review thus far was a pretty stark statement from Attorney General Barr Even though I think he took issue with a number of the inspector general's conclusions, because we should point out the inspector general said, even though he pointed out the very real and concerning deficiencies in the FISA process that went into getting to the Carter Page FISA, as we've talked about, he did say that the basis for opening the original investigation into the Trump campaign, uh, he didn't find any evidence of any political taint to that or political influence to that, and that there was an authorized basis or a legitimate basis to open the investigation. Attorney General Barr differed with the inspector general on that, but the attorney general did make a statement coming out of this IG review that I think you and I both agree with.
3: Well, we're considering a number of additional things. Uh, Chris Ray and I have discussed a number of possibilities. One of the things that we have agreed on is that the opening of a counterintelligence investigation of a presidential campaign would be something that the director of the FBI would have to sign off on and the attorney general would have to sign off on.
2: The decision was made in the summer of 2016 to open a counterintelligence investigation into the campaign of a presidential candidate. And that is so fraught. When you think about it, that means we're opening an investigation that then authorizes the FBI to use investigative tools of a variety of different types, including electronic surveillance, the FISA, against a campaign, somebody who's running for president. And, you know, this puts the FBI in the last position they want to be in, i.e. in a position where they might have some influence one way or the other on American politics. That's where you don't want the FBI. The FBI has been there. It was a disaster. It led to the abuses we talked about that were disclosed in the early 70s. And it's the place where the FBI can't be and shouldn't be. But unfortunately, they're the ones who run counterintelligence investigations. And if one is predicated and one is needed, they're the ones to run it. And, and I they think have to
1: do their job.
2: They've got to do their job. And <laughs> you can't say, because this is so perilous, we're not going to do it and right. give people – you know, sort of it's open season right. for counterintelligence threats running through presidential campaigns. And keep in mind, everybody agrees that 2016 wasn't the end of foreign political interference. Hardly. It's, it's just the beginning. Yep. We're going to see it and it's going to be redoubled by the Russians and by other copycats around the world. And 2020 is going to be full of it. So just quote happen, our former
1: boss, Bob Mueller. It's happening as we speak. Yeah,
2: as he is. testified. Mm-hmm. So the FBI needs yeah. that ability and needs to undertake those investigations. But I do agree that it's important to go back and look at the decision that was made in 2016 to, to do it because it's a momentous decision. But also the process that led to that decision. And look, DOJ over time has developed processes for. Decisions, prosecutive and investigative decisions in sensitive areas, whether it's, you know, the special processes for looking into organizations that have First Amendment implications, religious organizations and the like. Same thing here. And so I agree with Attorney General Barr that we need to look at that. And one thing he's he's floated is the idea that any decision like that needs to be signed off by the FBI director and the attorney general. And then that'll probably then have other process beneath each of them that will make sure that all aspects of this decision have been vetted, very carefully vetted. Some have said, well, gee, that's problematic because now you're taking in the person of the attorney general, a political appointee, a member of the president's cabinet, the sitting president's cabinet, and having that person sign off on or have decision-making authority over whether the FBI should open a counterintelligence investigation into a political entity? And doesn't that inject more politics into the decision-making? That's a legitimate concern.
1: Remember, it's the political appointees in the Justice Department who are ultimately accountable, right? They're the ones who can get hauled up before Congress to justify a decision. And that we need to make sure we hold them accountable, for those decisions, but first you have to place those decisions with them. So I think on balance, I agree that having even a very sensitive decision like this, especially a sensitive decision like this, have to go all the way up is an important thing, along with having more guidance. So, been fun talking to you about all these really challenging, depressing, and Never-ending issues, Ken.
2: Yeah, I'm glad we solved all our nation's national security yeah, problems. There so you go.
1: We'll see you next time. All right.
0: Lisa and Ken's conversation continues for Cafe Insiders. To hear the bonus, become a member at cafe.com/slash-insider. That's cafe.com/slash-insider. For those of you who have joined the Insider community. Thank you for supporting our work and a special thank you to Lisa and Ken. I'm looking forward to the next national security debrief. Simply safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important. SimplySafe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.